Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. This morning, uh, we are beginning a new sermon series, as Adam mentioned to you uh, a few moments ago, called Life Together, uh, Living in a Changing Community. Uh, Some of you have noticed that our church here at New Life has been changing (laughs) quite a bit. Uh, We are now, I think, our sixth or seventh Sunday here in this new sanctuary. Uh, Things look very different. Things feel very different than they have in a long time. And some of you, particularly those who have been here for quite a while, might be asking yourself, what happened to our church? And so uh, we thought it would be a good idea to spend some time looking at the scriptures to see what the Bible has to say to us about the church, about community, about living together, uh, so that we aren't splintered apart as a result of the changes that have taken place here, but that we're drawn closer together. So we're going to take six Sundays, uh, with the exception of October 26th, I think it is, that's Reformation Sunday, so we have a professor from Mid-America Seminary who will be here as a special speaker to observe that very special day in the life of our church. But uh, for the three Sundays prior to that and the three Sundays after, we're going to be considering this topic. So we're going to look at, uh, for instance, uh, spiritual gifts. How do we use our gifts? How do we identify our gifts? How do we use them to serve the body? Um, We will look at the topic of spiritual care. How do we know each other and develop relationships? We will consider um, how to encourage one another, how to use our words to affirm and build one another up. Uh, We'll take some time to consider the use of our money, how we use our money in service to the community. And we'll finish the series considering the topic of forgiveness, uh, forgiving those who have hurt us and wounded us. But today, what I am going to attempt to do from Scripture is to make the case for church membership. I want to seek to answer the question, should you join a church? Um, One of the reasons I think it's important to do this, I've been here 10 years now, I've never actually preached a sermon on this topic specifically, but I think in our culture and even in the church, we find that membership is is not really something very highly valued. It seems that many Christians tend to see membership in a church, commitment to a local church, as something kind of optional, like whether you want to vote in the election or whether you want to go to college or not. You know, it's a good choice maybe, but you don't really have to do it. It's an option. It's up to your preference. Tends to be the way a lot of people look at the church. A lot of people become Christians. They're born again by the Spirit. They place faith in Jesus. They receive assurance that their sins are forgiven. They know they're a child of God, and they're rejoicing in that. And then comes the question of church, and they kind of consider church kind of an optional accessory. Not really sure if I need it or not. A theologian named John Muther said, a child without a family is an orphan, a man without a country is a refugee, a Christian without a church is a typical American evangelical. (laughs) Well, there's reasons for this. There are a number of uh, reasons that people offer that maybe you have in mind for not committing to a church. Some of you have been hurt by the church. 
you've been in a church situation where you or your family has been wounded and you're suspicious. Uh, you might be just suspicious of institutions and structures in general. Uh, you don't like organized religion. Commitment to a local church, you think, would be putting your name on the dotted line for organized religion. Maybe you've seen authority abused. You've been perhaps the recipient of that, or you've at least witnessed it. Uh, maybe you just simply have never heard a case for church membership. You just don't believe that that's what the Bible teaches. It could be that you just don't know how to become a member. Maybe you want to, but you don't know how. Well, I'm, I'm going to explain that to you eventually. But uh, we're going to begin here this morning by looking at Acts chapter 2. So open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> and I'm going to read verses 37 to 41. And let me just say at the beginning here that this is going to be a very topical sermon this morning. We typically like to kind of stay with one text of Scripture and unpack it uh, one phrase at a time. But it's really hard to find just one passage of Scripture that sums up all that there is to be said about <clears throat> church membership. So we're going to look at Acts 2, 37 to 41, and we're just going to allow that to kind of get us started. But uh, get ready, we're going to go, uh, we're going to consider a lot of different passages of Scripture. I'll have them on the screen for you, but if you have your Bible, feel free to, to uh, look around with me as we go from passage to passage. But uh, here's Acts chapter 2. This is uh, uh, <clears throat> the description of Pentecost. Acts is the story of the history of the local church. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, we have the coming of the Holy Spirit. God sends the Holy Spirit upon His people. And then starting in verse 14, Peter stands up and he delivers this wonderfully famous sermon and uh, makes some very key points about what Jesus has done. Uh, Peter makes the case that uh, Jesus is the descendant of David, that he is exalted at the right hand of God. He's received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit uh, that uh, God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. He is resurrected from the dead. He reigns and is sovereign over all things. Peter makes this point very clear, and at the end of verse 36, he makes this very cutting remark. He says, this is the Jesus whom you have crucified, this Lord and giver of life, and you killed him. And then starting in verse 37, we see the response, uh, how people responded to uh, this sermon that Peter has preached. That's what we're going to read. Let's stand now for the reading of God's Word, Acts 2, verses 37 to 41. <clears throat> now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Lord, again, we do ask, bless by your Spirit, open eyes, soften hearts, change people, save the lost, build your church, 
as your word is preached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to consider some reasons for you to join a church, and then we'll consider some objections that you might have to this, and then lastly, I want to give you the process for how to to join uh, this church. Sorry, I didn't have the passage up on the the screen there. But uh, first of all, let's consider reasons uh, to join a church. And notice I say a church. I mean, I would love for you to join this church, but if you don't join this church, that's okay. Uh, But you should find a church, a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church to give yourself to in commitment. And so let me seek to make this case. And the first sub-point here is that membership is assumed in the Bible. This is my case for church membership. First of all, membership in a church is assumed in the Bible. Now notice I don't say it's commanded in the Bible. I, I don't find a passage that explicitly commands it, but... I think it's assumed, it's implicit in all the scriptures. It's like, have you ever noticed that the Bible doesn't make a case for the existence of God? The Bible never lays out a case and makes an argument for why God exists or how we can believe that He exists. The Bible assumes that God exists. And I think it's the same with church membership. There's just this assumption that we have kind of gotten away from, as Pastor Brian had mentioned, because, partly anyway, the individualistic culture in which we live. And it's hard for us to see how connection to a community is so important, but it's just assumed in the Bible. So let me show you some examples of that. Let's just look at our passage here, verse 41 in particular. Let's look look at what happens here. These people, they hear Peter preaching. It says that they received his word. I believe what that means is that they believed The word, as Peter preached it, that they became Christians. And then notice what happens next. They receive the word, and it says they are baptized. And then it says there were added that day about 3,000 souls. People were added. Added to what? They were added to the fellowship, the body of believers, the church. 3,000 people added to the church. This goes hand in hand with becoming a Christian. There's the individual reception and belief upon Jesus, and then there's the adding to the body of believers. And they go together. They happen hand in hand. Here's what John Stott says about this passage. He says, Peter is not asking for private an individual conversion only, but for a public identification with other believers. Commitment to the Messiah implied commitment to the Messianic community, that is, the church. I mean, isn't it interesting here that there's a count? Apparently, the early Christians were keeping count of the number of people who had committed themselves to the church. There were 3,000 added on this day. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 15, We learned that there were actually 120 disciples to begin with. Now we see 3,000 added, so there have been 3,120 members of the early church at this point. If you go forward to chapter 4, verse 4, it says the number of members reached 5,000. So somebody's keeping track. Somebody's keeping account. Doesn't it Isn't it implied that if there is a count, there is a knowledge of who is a part of the church and who is not? That there's some kind of a role or list of who belongs to the body. 
This seems to be implied in what is being said here in this text. People being added to the church. Now, let's go to another passage. Here's Acts 5, verses 12 and 13. Something a little different is happening here, but the same thing is assumed. The same thing is implicit. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So here we have a description of the community of people at the time viewing the church, they respect the church, they hold the church in high esteem, but they're not willing to join the church. So in this case we have, in the first passage there were people who were added, in this case there are people who find the church attractive. It's not like these are persecutors of the church, we don't even know necessarily if they were unbelievers. They held the church in high esteem, but they wouldn't join. See how that's assumed? The joining, the commitment to a church? One other passage to make this point. Here's 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2. Paul here is making the case, or uh, he is, uh, he's describing a, a, a very uh, a problematic situation in the Corinthian church where there is some sexual immorality going on in the church, and Paul is shocked at what? Look what it says. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this, the man doing this, the man committing this sexual sin. Paul is appalled that the church hadn't made a decision to discipline this man and kick him out. That's what he's saying. Put out of your fellowship. My eyes are getting worse. I can just barely read that on the back wall there. Put out of your fellowship the man who did this. To put someone out of a fellowship, doesn't that assume that you have to be in the fellowship? How how do you kick somebody out who was never officially in? How do you go after someone and say, you don't belong here anymore, when they never really said, I want to belong here and I want to make a commitment to this place? In the first verse, we have people added and a specific count of the number who are added. In the second verse, we have people who like the church, but they won't be added. In the third example, we have people who were in the church and are excommunicated. They are put out of the fellowship. In each of these cases, I I just don't see how we can make sense of these three verses, and there's many more like this, in the absence of any kind of formal church membership. Now, it happens in different ways. I'll tell you in a moment how we do it, Uh, but some kind of formal commitment to a local body seems to be assumed in each of these passages. So that's my first reason for joining a church. Membership is assumed. The second reason to join a church. Membership clarifies your responsibility before God. It clarifies your responsibility before God and your obedience to the Word. So let's Look at another passage. Here's Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. And it says, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. 
And you notice how this exhortation places priority on the household of the faith. There is a command for us to do good to all kinds of people, but there's a group of people who deserve our most concentrated and committed efforts, and it's those who are among the household of the faith. In my mind, this is really helpful. Have you ever felt kind of guilty that you weren't doing more to help the starving children in Africa? I mean, you look around the world and you see all these needs all over the world and you think, I should be doing something about that. I should be helping those people. I should be contributing to that church in Croatia or that church in South Africa. Now, those are good things and we should do those things. As you have opportunity, do good to everyone. Yes, do that. But here's something that helps clarify your responsibility. Friends, you are not responsible to meet every single need in the world as a Christian. You're responsible primarily, most fundamentally, to serve, bless, commit to, and love those who are part of the household of faith, your household of faith. So the question is, do you know who that is? I mean, it's just like a father. Is a father responsible to meet the needs of every child in his neighborhood or every child in his community? No, he is responsible for the children in his household. And you and I as Christians are responsible to a household. I don't think that means the invisible universal body of Christ. I think it means a specific household. It would be impossible to serve, bless, and be responsible to every Christian throughout the world. So friends, do you know who is part of your household? To whom are you responsible as a Christian to serve and care for? Are you responsible to the Christians at First Baptist in Bismarck, North Dakota? Are you responsible to them? Are you responsible to the Christians at Union Chapel, at Westminster Presbyterian? I mean, to a degree, yes, we do good to everyone as we have opportunity, but there's a narrowing, a clarifying responsibility that Paul is saying here, that you're responsible to the people with whom you have joined in a church. And that helps clarify to whom are responsible. Here, here's another way of looking, this, looking at this. Here's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. It says, We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. Who has charge over you? Do you know, Christians, who has charge over you? Is it... I mean, do you think John Piper has charge over you? Or Joel Osteen? Or Charles Stanley, because you watch them on TV? Do they have, I assure you, they don't know that they have charge over you. This implies that, we, that there are people, men who are set up, who have charge over a household, a community, and that Christians know who those people are, know to whom they're responsible as their leaders. Membership will clarify this. It'll help us understand to whom are we, are we responsible as brothers and sisters and to whom are we responsible as leaders. One other thing. <clears throat> Why join a church? Membership allows you to publicly identify with Jesus and his people. Membership allows you to, pu excuse me, to publicly identify with Jesus, to publicly voice your commitment to Jesus and his church. Isn't it true that we are quick to identify with the things, people, movements that we're passionate about? I mean, many of us are quick to say, I'm a Republican. You know, I'm a Democrat. I'm a Colts fan. And we wear the Colts jerseys and the Colts hat. 
because we want it to be publicly known that we identify with this. Some of us are a, a Chevy guy. Some of us are a Ford guy. We wear Chevy shirts and Ford shirts so that it can be publicly known who we're identifying with. Don't you want it to be publicly known, Christian, that you identify with Jesus? Don't, don't you want that? And the best example of all is a marriage ceremony in a wedding. A man and a woman, they come together, and I know not in all cases, but in most cases, weddings are public, and that the two come together, and they make vows to each other so that the whole world, or at least those who are at that wedding ceremony, can know the one that you cherish the most in all the world. And you give those vows publicly. Membership allows you that opportunity. You can make it public that you love and believe in Jesus. And here's first Timothy 6.12, Paul talking to Timothy, he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy apparently stood before a body of believers and proclaimed his faith in Jesus. Now, was he joining a church at that time? Yeah, okay, I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, but there was this public profession, and apparently it was important enough for Paul to point that out. Uh, some of you know who Cody Brobst is. Cody is a member of this church. Cody and Courtney are now in St. Louis, and Cody is attending classes at Covenant Seminary. And I remember when Cody became a member of this church years ago, <clears throat> typically we give like membership certificates, and somehow Cody didn't get his, and he wanted that certificate so bad. And he kept emailing me and calling me. He wanted that certificate. Finally, we got it together and we gave it to him. And he said he took it back to his dorm room and hung it up on the wall. And I emailed him this week and I said, you know, review with me what happened there. Do you recall? And he says, I'll tell you this. It's on my wall right now. Membership in New Life Presbyterian Church dated October 26, 2008. Hanging there on his wall. Six years later. That's how much membership meant to Cody Brobst. And it should mean a lot to us too. Now let me clarify something before we go to the second point. Do not hear me saying that you have to be a member in order to get to heaven or in order to be a Christian. Membership in a church doesn't save anyone. <laughs> Only Jesus saves. Only His shed blood on the cross only personal faith in what Jesus has done. Membership in a church won't buy you God's favor or merit your acceptance before Him. But, let me just quote R.B. Kuyper here. He says, the scriptural rule is that while membership in the church is not a prerequisite of salvation, it is a necessary consequence of salvation. It should come with salvation. Is repentance something we need to do in order to pay for our salvation? No. But does repentance always accompany the person who is truly saved? Yes. And membership in a church should be understood in a similar way. Okay? Those are my reasons to join a church. Man, there's so much more to be said there. Um, but let's go to the second thing. What are some objections to joining a church? What objection might you have? I'm going to list these one at a time and try to... Uh, answer them. The first one is this. I'm a member of the invisible church, and that's enough. 
Now, it is true that when you become a Christian, you do become part of what's called, the theologians call the invisible church or the universal church. We call it the invisible church because it's every true converted person on the globe and throughout history, and there's only one person who sees that, and that's God. We, we don't see that. That's not readily apparent to our eyes. So we call it the invisible church. And in fact, when Brian led us through the Nicene Creed, we said that we believed in the Catholic Church. Remember, it was a little c Catholic Church. What we confessed was belief in the invisible church. That's what that word means, Catholic. It means universal. It means the whole church. That doesn't mean the Roman Catholic Church. It wasn't a capital C. It was a lower C. It means universal church. So we affirm belief in the universal, invisible church. But there's also something called the visible church. That's the local church as we see it with our own eyes on earth. That's the visible church. And in the New Testament, the word church is used 110 times, 93 of those occasions are references to the local visible church. There are references in the New Testament to the invisible church, the universal church, but the great majority of references in the New Testament is to the local visible church. There was a man who went to a pastor and he said, Pastor, I want to sing in your choir. And the pastor said, uh, okay, I don't think you're a member of this church, are you? And the man said, no, I'm not a member of this church. I don't think that's necessary. Uh, I'm a member of the invisible church. And the pastor said, well, maybe you should join the invisible choir. <laughs> this, this doesn't work theoretically to think only in terms of the invisible church. To be realistic, there are visible local congregations to which we should be willing to commit. So that's the first objection. Second objection that you might be thinking, I don't agree with all your doctrine. I don't want to join your church because I don't agree with all your doctrine. Well, let me tell you that you'll be in very good company if you join this church. There are a lot of people here who don't agree with all of our doctrine. Now, I think it's true that you should choose a church that you are in substantial agreement with doctrinally. You don't want to go to a place where you're constantly frustrated because you're constantly hearing things you don't agree with. But um, the only prerequisite for salvation or for a membership here at New Life is that you be a Christian and that you be baptized. That's all we, we require. You, you don't have to sign on the dotted line for all of our doctrinal distinctions. Be a Christian be baptized. We're not requesting baptism because baptism saves you. No, we don't believe baptism saves a person any more than membership saves a person. But if you look back at the text, remember what I pointed out, verse 41, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Baptism goes hand in hand with conversion in the book of Acts and is often connected with the body of Christ. I have a list of uh, passages here from Acts on the screen. If you want to write these down, a number of passages that emphasize the centrality of baptism uh, in the book of Acts and in the growth uh, of the early church. So uh, I invite you to write those down and check them out uh, on your own. So the baptism is not, 
You don't have to be rebaptized. If you've already been baptized, that, that's fine, assuming it was a Christian baptism. But all we require is that you're trusting in Jesus, you're looking to Him, you're leaning on Him, and you've received the sign of entrance into the church. So if you haven't been baptized, we'd be happy to baptize you here, as we did last Sunday. We had three baptisms, uh, which was a joyful and happy occasion for us. Objection number three. I don't lose anything if I'm not a member. Why should I become a member? Everything's fine right now. Well, how would I respond to that? Well, I would say refer to point one of this sermon. <laughs> I made the case that the Bible assumes membership, that membership clarifies your responsibility to other Christians and to leaders, and that membership allows this public profession of faith. That those would be opportunities for you if you were to become a member of the church. But I would respond also by asking a question in response. What do you lose if you are a member? I know you're not supposed to answer a question with a question, but I think that's a legitimate question. What will you lose if you are a member? Sometimes I use this as an example, um, referring to marriage again. What, what does a married woman lose if she doesn't have a wedding ring? I mean, in a sense, not much, I guess. She's still married, and she will be married and can continue to be married. She doesn't have to have a ring to be married. But there aren't many married women who are willing to go without a ring. So do you have to be a church? Uh, do you have to be a member of a church in order to be saved? No. But, but what are you missing if you don't become a member of a church? I actually asked Mary about this. I didn't tell her the reason why. I said, Mary... She's my wife, by the way. Uh, I asked Mary, um, what would you lose if you didn't have your wedding ring? And she said, I'd lose a sense of identity, and it wouldn't be known that I belong to someone. That, that's, that's very helpful as we think through this. Being a member of a church declares that you belong to Jesus. And you want the world to know that. So there are some things that are lost if you're not a member of a church. Fourth objection, I'm afraid that authority, the people in authority, will use that authority to hurt my family or me. I'm worried that I'm going to be mistreated. I'm worried that I'm not going to be properly respected. Um, I just want to share a couple passages. First, Peter chapter 5. I don't have that on the screen, but uh, this is an exhortation to elders. And Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. That's the charge to the leaders of this church, that we would not be domineering over this body. Now, we're sinful men. We make mistakes. We fully acknowledge that. But I want you to know the leaders of this church are committed to submitting ourselves to the authority of that passage, to not domineer or abuse this congregation. We consider ourselves servant leaders. God's given us authority, but we see the authority that we've been given as an opportunity to serve. Just like we see in John chapter 13, Jesus with his disciples before the Last Supper. Jesus has authority over the disciples, right? But how does he use his authority? He kneels down and he washes their feet. And then he says, go and do likewise. 
And we consider that command, that charge, to be given to us as elders and leaders of the church to go and do likewise to serve this local congregation. One more objection that perhaps you might be thinking, I don't know how to become a member. What do I do? So let's take a moment and consider that. We've looked at reasons to join a church, objections to joining a church. Now, what's the process of joining this church? Four steps. Four steps to join New Life. The first one is this, investigation. And I'm guessing that many of you are perhaps at this stage now. Um, I mean, just so you know, I think, I might uh, be corrected on this, but I think about a third, at least a third of the people who come here to New Life are not members of the church. And and so let me clarify, (laughs) I I hope you keep coming back. We we want you to be here, even if you're not a member, you're welcome here. Uh, But there are quite a few people who are not members. And uh, those of you who aren't, maybe you're thinking about it, working through it, and and that's fine. We want you to take your time with that. Uh, We respect that. This is a big decision. It is not something to be entered into lightly or quickly. I mean, it can be likened to finding a spouse, to being married. You want to take that very seriously and move relatively slowly on that. So, Maybe you're in the investigation phase, that, that's fine. I just want to reiterate to you that uh, this sermon comes in good time because next Sunday we do have a membership class beginning. Next Sunday, 9 a.m. for six Sundays, we'll offer a membership class. We have been doing these, these over the weekend, Friday night, Saturday morning sessions that were kind of a lot to do in just one weekend, so uh, we're trying a new way now. Uh, various elders will be teaching this class. We'll be looking at topics like the history of the church and the core values that we have here, our long-term goals, the doctrines that we hold to, how you can get involved. Um, those kinds of things will be talked about. There's no obligation to join the church, but if you're in the investigation uh, phase, this is the place to start. Uh, plan to go to the membership class starting next Sunday, six Sundays starting next Sunday. Uh, Affirmation would be the next step. That's simply where you say, I I think I want to join. I want to join this church. Uh, You will have materials from the membership class. There will be a a little application. It's just a couple of pages. You just fill out that application and hand it in to me or Pastor Brian or the office, and that's your way of indicating to us that you want to join the church. Third phase would be confirmation. This is where we'll have an an interview with you uh, with the elders. Uh, We have six elders here. Uh, We rarely get all six elders together for one of these interviews, but it will be a few of us anyway, and all we want to do is hear your profession of faith. We just want to hear your confidence for going to heaven, how you became a Christian, how it is you know you are right with God. Um, That's an opportunity for the leaders of this church to confirm that indeed you are a Christian. Now, if that's something that terrifies you and makes you nervous, I would just invite you to ask any member of this church, what was the membership interview like? And I think they will assuage your fears. It's not that bad, really. Uh, Fairly brief, too, just about 15 minutes. Confirmation. And then the last step of the membership process would be celebration. We'll have you come before the congregation, stand right here, and we'll ask you 
five questions, and all you have to do is be able to say yes to each of those five questions. And again, if you haven't been baptized, we would baptize you like we did last week, uh, the three men here. But you would have to be able to answer in good conscience five questions. So let me tell you what those questions are. And before I do this, let me say this. To the members of this church who might be thinking, this sermon has nothing to do with me. I'm already a member. What am I supposed to do? Here's my exhortation to you. Follow these vows and ask yourself, am I fulfilling what I promised when I became a member of New Life? Members, you promised to do these five things. So a time of review and reflection for you. But if you're joining the church, you'd have to say yes to these five things. First of all, do you acknowledge yourself, selves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? Bottom line, do you consider yourself a sinner who can't save yourself? Can you say that? Second question, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Is your faith in Jesus for salvation? Are you hoping in him and nothing else? Nothing in you, nothing you haven't done, nothing you have done, nothing you plan to do. Are you trusting only in Jesus for your salvation? Can you say yes to that? Third question. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor, that you will try, that you will attempt to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Will you seek to live in obedience to Jesus? You're not going to do that perfectly. You're going to fail on many occasions, and every time you fail, you're going to run to the gospel and drink from the fountain of blood that Jesus has spilled for your sins and rejoice that you are right before God through faith alone. And try again. That's what we do as Christians. But will you affirm that you're at least willing to commit yourself to obedience to Jesus? Those are the first three questions. They have to do with your relationship before God. The last two questions have to do with your relationship to the local church. And that's to be expected, isn't it? After everything that we've been saying here today, the importance of community, the importance of belonging, the importance of the visible church. So the fourth question says this, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? As best as you can, there are a lot of limits to what we can give to a church, right? In terms of where we live and how healthy we are and what's going on in our life, there, there are limits. But as best as you can, will you promise to support this local body, this household of faith? And then lastly, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? This is just a way of acknowledging that you now know who has charge over you. It's the elders of this church. That's why the Bible spends so much time, 1 Timothy 3 in particular, explaining all of the requirements for an elder and deacon because churches are led by elders and deacons and Christians are to come under their leadership and oversight. Now, I know we have a lot of college students here. Some of you students might be saying, I don't know, should I become a member? I, I would say, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it depends on what your long-term plans are. It depends on your membership at your home church. We've had many college students become members here. You can become an associate member here and hold membership at a home church. That's a possibility as well. But college students, I would suggest you consider this as well. So that's how you become a member. That's it. It's easy. It's simple. You should do it. <laughs> and you can begin that process 
next Sunday. Friends, know this. Do you know that there is nothing on this earth that Jesus loves more than his church? Do you know that? He loves his glory, that's true, but on this earth there is nothing that he loves more than his church. We as the church are the apple of his eye. Our names are engraved on his hand. And he proved his love and commitment to the church. He went the whole way and gave his life for his bride. Christian, won't you commit yourself to his bride and become a member of his body? Let's pray. Father, I do pray for your spirit to guide and lead uh, these dear people as they process all that has been said here. Um, Help them, Father, to know uh, if they should become a member here or someplace else or what you're leading them to do. Just make that clear to them, Father. And I do pray for us as leaders of this church that we would be servant leaders who shepherd with gentleness and humility this church. What a privilege it is to be leaders of your church. We thank you for that and pray that you continue to bless this local body. In Jesus' name, amen.